What Putin's done is he's exported this through elite capture. He's exported this first to the post-Soviet, to the former Soviet space, and ultimately to the West, um, primarily to Europe. Um, and I'll get into that in a bit. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine as, as it's inevitable um, as, the, as this discussion. And I think the Ukraine crisis can be described, it can be explained a lot through the logic of, the, of, of looking at this regime as a crime syndicate. But, uh, but Viktor Yanukovych, the former, the deposed president of, 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 of Ukraine, was an example of this. He was corrupted and controlled by Moscow. Um, but it goes even further. I mean, I would include the de facto ruler of Georgia, Bidzina Ivanishvili, the former prime minister who holds no official post right now, but there's no doubts that he is, he is the single most powerful man in Georgia. Um, it extends to Western Europe. Gerhard Schrader, the, former, the former, uh, former chancellor of Germany, is an example of this. Milos Zeman, the president of the Czech Republic, is an example of this. Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, and the list goes on and on and on, and below heads of state and government. Um, so the, the the, the, tool, the way corruption is used as a tool of straight statecraft is to control and to create a zone of corruption that, that, that Russia can control. Russia's not coming at the world, essentially, in the first instance, with tanks, like the Soviet Union did. It's coming at it with banks. And it's, it's, this, is a, this is a key way to, to understand this. Um, Putin talks a lot about his spheres of influence, but I look at it as he's trying to create a sphere of corruption. And this brings us to Ukraine. Why did, why did a war start over Ukraine wanting to sign a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union? I can't think of any incident in history when such a piece of bureaucratic gobbledygook was a, was a cause for a war to start. But this is, this is what happened. And why did this happen? I think before you can answer that question, you kind of have to look at the, the, the difference in development in Ukraine in the Russian Federation since the Soviet breakup. Um, and I always look back to basically the key years of 1993 and 1994. At that time, similar crises were developing in the elite of Ukraine and, and, and Russia. You had a president who was nominally reformist, um, and you had a parliament that was more or less unreconstructed Soviet retrograde. And you had, a, 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 you had gridlock between these two institutions in both countries. In Russia, in October 93, we all know what happened. Um, President Yeltsin solved the problem by, by firing from tanks, artillery, into the parliament and subduing it. And this I see as Russia's original sin. At the time, people that supported a Western path for Russia, myself included, applauded this move. And we thought this was going to push Russia on the path of kind of moving in more of a Western direction, and oh boy, were we wrong. Ukraine solved a similar problem in a very different way. The, the, the president, Leonid Kravchuk, called early elections. And in the summer of 1994, those elections were held. I was in Kyiv that summer, that hot summer of, uh, of 94. And they were the most boring elections I ever <laughs> witnessed. But they were also probably the most important elections in the post-Soviet space that I, ever, that I ever witnessed, although we didn't realize that at the time. Because what happened in the second round of that election is Mr. Kravchuk lost to Leonid Kuchma, and he did an amazing thing in the post-Soviet space. He stepped aside and let the victor take over the presidency, and you had this, the first transition of power in the former Soviet Union, and it happened, I mean, you, you could have slept through it, but it happened, and at the time I saw this, as, I was like, God, that, that might just turn out to be really important. I wonder if that's gonna happen ever in Russia. Turns out, to this day, it hasn't happened in Russia. But in, in Ukraine, 
the incumbent has lost almost every election. The only incumbent to win an election in Ukraine was Kuchma in 1999. Every other incumbent has lost. In Russia, in contrast, either the incumbent or the incumbent's handpicked successor won. So you had a political system in Ukraine that developed in a very different way. You can spread this through the elite. In Ukraine, you had an oligarchy, just like in Russia, but it was a very pluralistic oligarchy. There was in competition with each other, where in Russia, at least since Putin came to power, you had a very consolidated oligarchy that was, that was basically subservient to the state. Civil society, this elite pluralism that developed in Ukraine allowed the space for civil society to develop along very different lines than it did in Russia. In Russia, I don't think I have to go into great detail to talk about how the, how the civil society has either been co-opted or intimidated into submission. So this brings us to 2013, when Ukraine was about to sign this deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. And to a, a lot of people's surprise, myself included, Viktor Yanukovych appeared willing to sign this agreement, despite the fact that I consider him to have been a bought and paid for subsidiary of, of the Putin syndicate. Um, why was Yanukovych ready to sign this? Well, he was ready to sign it first and foremost because his own power base, the Donbass oligarchs, people like Renat Akhmetov, Viktor Pinchuk, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, wanted him to sign it because they understood, they wanted to legitimize their ill-gotten wealth, and they understood that their chances of, of surviving were much better in a chaotic, pluralistic, imperfect, quasi-democratic Ukraine than in being part of the Russian economic space, because they all understood they could turn into Hudrykovsky overnight, literally. Strange things happen in Russia to people who think they own property. And Akhmetov, Pinchuk, Kolomoisky, and the other oligarchs understand this. Stand this. Russia was dead set against Ukraine signing this document. Now, you have to kind of step back and ask why at this point. I mean, really, uh, the European Union signed a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with Canada. I don't think it freaked anybody out in the White House. Um, Russia signed a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with South Korea. Europe signed a, a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with South Korea. The Chinese didn't mind. The Japanese didn't mind. Why is this? Well, it's because the United States, Europe, Japan, Canada, South Korea, and even China more or less play by the same transparent rules when it comes to international business. The Russians do not. So I talked about this sphere of corruption that Mr. Putin is trying to create. Bringing Ukraine into this deep and comprehensive free trade agreement would mean greater transparency in Ukraine. It would mean a less, Russia would have a less of an ability to corrupt and control Ukraine. Um, Ukraine was a very important pre-wash destination for Russian money before it, before it went to Europe. It was pre-laundered pre before it was fully laundered in, in, in cleaner markets in Europe. The port of Odessa was a vital uh, hub for the, the, the smuggling of contraband of all sorts, human trafficking, narcotics, weapons, what have you, that Russian organized crime and the Russian security services were involved in. And this losing this was unacceptable to Russia. So what happened was we had, we had a series of mistakes that Mr. Putin made in Ukraine. You had almost a mission creep where this thing got escalated to the point where I will argue that it basically undermined the core interests of this Putin syndicate. First, Mr. Putin thought he could buy off Ukraine by buying off Yanukovych. He did exactly what you would expect the leader of a crime syndicate to do. He blackmailed and he bribed. Uh, Mr. Yanukovych made a visit to Moscow 
right before the Vilnius summit when, the, when, the, when this agreement was supposed to be signed. And it's strange, uh, we, were, we were following this at RFE and he, he just disappeared from the radar. Nobody knew where he was exactly. Um, he, was, he was having a, a private sit down with Putin where according to my sources, Putin said that he had identified, his economists had identified all of the weak points in the Ukrainian economy in Yanukovych's family's personal finances, and that if he signed this agreement, Russia was gonna squeeze each one of these. But if you don't sign it, well, here's 15 billion for you. Yanukovych, of course, acquiesced. He's a very, he was, he's a very, nobody will ever accuse him of being a strong leader or of having any kind of backbone. Um, and Putin thought it was game over, and so did I at the that time. But what happened next, as we all know, the Euromaidan started, and Putin here made a second mistake. He thought that the same repressive methods that would work in Russia, cracking down on the opposition, of course, after all, that's what he did with the Bolotnaya protesters, would work in Ukraine, and he instructed, and according to, again, according to my sources, he instructed Mr. Yanukovych to crack down. This was I must add, unprecedented in Ukraine. There was no history of the authorities using that kind of violence against their own citizens until that point. And when he did it, it didn't have the same effect as it had in Russia, because Ukrainian civil society is different. It had the opposite effect. It had a bratny resultat, as the Russians would say. More people came out, and this small protest turned into a genuine middle-class revolution. You had corporate lawyers throwing Molotov cocktails, actual corporate lawyers throwing actual Molotov cocktails. I'm not saying that to be glib. This was actually happening. You had, and, and Yanukovych, of course, was driven from power. Then Putin made his third mistake. He assumed that ethnicity and language equal political loyalty. It turned out to be the case in Crimea, and that surprised nobody. It turned out to be the case to a degree in Donbass, and that didn't really surprise anybody. But Putin had his eye on a strip of territory from Kharkiv all the way to Odessa, a land bridge to Crimea, what the Kremlin likes to call Novorossiya. Um, but people in Odessa and Kharkiv and Dnipropetrovsk had other ideas about this. The Russian speakers of, the, of, the, of those cities and those regions understood that they were a lot better off being a minority in a democratic, albeit imperfect, Ukraine than just like the oligarchs in, a, in an uh, autocratic Russia. These people are not fools. I lived in Odessa in the early 90s. Odessans are very clever and they love their freedom. And they, they, they take pride in the fact that they call theirs the freest Russian-speaking city in the world. And they, they say this is a matter of civic pride, and they knew they were going to lose that if they, if they, if they went the route of Crimea or, or, the, or, or, or the areas of Donbass that were, were under control. So, so Putin made his third mistake here. And where are we now? As a result of this continued escalation, this syndicate has undermined its core interests. Because in order for this syndicate to operate, it had to be able to pretend and have others pretend in the collective hallucination that it is really respectable businessmen or a respectable country. They were using our transparent financial institutions for their non-transparent and corrupt ends. And now as a result of sanctions, they've been cut off from that. And as a result, I think the syndicate is actually in crisis. Um, and the last data point to this point, and it'll be the, the, the last thing I, I say before I, we, 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 we shift to taking correct, correct questions, is that the defection of Viktor Yanukovych or the expulsion, I'm, I'm sorry, of, 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 of Vladimir Yakunin from Putin's inner circle, the, the head of Russian railways, there are a few people closer to Putin than Mr. Yakunin. He's, he's been with him since, since his St. Petersburg days. He was a made man. He resigned as head of Russian railways 
He has disappeared from the inner circle for all intents and purposes. A lot of us are scratching our heads about what this means because there was no indication this was coming. But what it tells me, because I, and I'm not going to pretend I know what actually happened there, but when somebody of that level defects or is kicked out of the inner circle, it's an indication that all is not well among the made men of the Putin syndicate. The last time somebody of this magnitude left the inner circle, the same time, last time somebody of this stature left the inner circle, it was when Alexei Kudrin, the former finance minister, close personal friend of Putin, resigned back in September 2011, right after Putin announced he was coming back to the presidency, um, sparking the, one of the worst crises we've seen in, in, in the Russian elite during Putin's rule, and right before we saw the largest street protests that, the, that Russia had seen since the breakup of the Soviet Union. So I took the Yakunin defection as a, a very important data point. I'm waiting for the next data point, but I think it's an indication that all is not well. And on that note, I will wrap it up. Thank you very much, that was wonderful. Thanks very much all and um, thank you to the Atlantic Council for hosting uh, this important event on a very important topic. I want to focus my response to Brian on what has really been a, a very clever ploy by the Kremlin and by this Putin syndicate to export that corruption. We talk a lot about hybrid warfare these days, and we talk a lot about uh, the different tactics that the Russian armies used in Ukraine or in uh, using little green men uh, to take over Crimea, for instance. But one of the things that's really not talked about is the mafia aspect here. It's the money. And you need to really look and follow the money. Where the money goes is where Putin's tentacles go. That's where the influence is. And I think the best example of that is precisely what Brian just described happened in Ukraine. But we also shouldn't pretend that that is completely over in Ukraine. What happened at Euromaidan was a terrific, wonderful thing. But things are still very, very fluid in Ukraine. And we shouldn't pretend that Putin does not have any of those connections anymore. Those same oligarchs that you mentioned, Akhmetov, Kolomoisky, they still exist in the Ukrainian political sphere. They still work in the same businesses, and they still have similar business interests. They still have those same connections in Russia. And I think one of the things that's been missing when we talk now about uh, Putin's giving up on Ukraine, he's turning to Syria, we're looking only at the military aspect of this. He still has the political influence. He still has the financial influence. He still has the ability to finance uh, political parties, whether they be on the far right, the far left, or uh, someone in between, to do precisely what he needs them to do and what he wants them to do. I'm not so sure that Putin's aim in Ukraine is to have a Novorossiya or, or hold Donbass, but what he certainly wants is an, a Ukraine that's unstable, a Ukraine that's weak, a Ukraine that cannot, under any circumstances, join Western organizations, join Western uh, institutions, because they themselves are just so corrupt. It's his aim to use this tool, this mafia tool, to get to the heart of, of Ukrainian democracy and to weaken, and if he can, destroy it. And I don't think that's, uh, it, it's a pattern that's also followed in, in other countries. Uh, we saw today the very sort of evil, uh, very corrupt mayor of Tallinn, Estonia. Uh, longtime mayor of Tallinn, 
I believe his former prime minister, head of the pro-Russian opposition party, was arrested by the Estonian authorities. Um, after years of being suspected on corruption, he was arrested today for bribery. These people are very, very common kinds of occurrences in, in most of the Eastern European countries. Putin, because he has these strong connections from his KGB days, from his time when he was working in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg, and working to build connections between these newly independent countries, he has very strong connections. And he's not afraid to use connections, as well as the information he knows about people, what they call kompromat, or compromising material, in order to get what he wants. It's precisely what you describe. And we see this now in Bulgaria, in the Czech Republic, um, uh, Hungary, Ukraine, Slovakia, any of these countries. Germany. Germany. <laughs> uh, and I haven't even mentioned London, which is where most of Putin's men, uh, and probably Putin himself for all we know, they know they can't rely on the Russian system of law, so they go to the English system of law where at least they can keep their money safe. But as we allow that money to cycle through our system, and as we, uh, there was a recent, uh, I believe it was a BBC expose, uh, or maybe- From Russia with cash, Channel 4, yeah. Exactly, and they went and they, they took, uh, <laughs> they, they pretended to be rich Russians, uh, and they talked openly about how they were stealing money from the health ministry, <laughs> and every single one of the real estate agents they spoke to in London was perfectly willing and happy to turn their heads and allow them to spend that dirty money though it was fake, uh, to spend their ill-gotten gains. And, and that's the kind of thing that we, I think, need to be introspective about and, and really ask ourselves the extent to which we want to allow that kind of behavior in our own societies. It's a weak point, and Putin is exploiting it, uh, both for his financial, his financial benefit and to weaken our democracies. I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you, Hannah um, Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And it's always great to listen to, to, to Brian, uh, who is a former colleague uh, when I worked briefly at RFL. Um, glad to see you again. And uh, glad that you still have the same passion for uh, <laughs> uh, Kremlinology or really understanding what the system is about. And I learned a lot from your remarks, as always. Um, I'm, I'm still wondering uh, whether crime syndicate, I think it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's obvious that crime plays a big role, corruption plays a big role, um, and enrichissez-vous uh, is, is the kind of post-Soviet uh, rallying cry in, in Russia. It's all about money, uh, ideology is gone, um, people have stopped to believe in, in anything, besides materialism. Now, now they become what they saw as the capitalist enemy before. I mean, they become um, you know, a caricature almost of, of, of capitalism. But still, uh, in Russia, institutions are working. We see the military has much improved in the last years. So I would ask you the question, how, how do you see, I mean, the fact that there are parts of branches of government that are still working. Um, and the, which, which, you know, requires to have a bureaucracy, which requires to have a routine, which requires some kind of hierarchy. So this is not Somalia, you know, it's not anarchy. Um, and, and maybe some of the Soviet institutions are still working or, or some kind of bureaucratic uh, mindset. So, so corruption, I think, I mean, we often talk about corruption as if a country is either corrupt or not corrupt. But I think corruption can be can serve different 
kind mm -hmm. of goals. It can also play a role as a social mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there is there is not corruption is not everywhere the same. Sometimes it's just without rules, and sometimes it's just it's a tariff. You you pay that kind of amount to get something done. So so I, I would I mean one of my questions would be um, is this all about corruption? Is is corruption really the, the one thing that holds the state together? And the other point is. Um, I still think, I mean, there's the, if, we, if we try to understand Putin's system as an entirely materialistic um, game, you know, it's get after the, uh, go after the money and, and it's, it's, it's all about getting rich. But I, I'm not sure whether this is really what the system is about. I mean, that's part of the game, certainly. They want to be rich and they think they are entitled to be rich. They, they are entitled to own uh, what is actually state property or oil and gas. Um, but isn't there also something ideologic? Isn't there an idea of greater Russia or, or great power or sphere, I mean, talk sphere of influence or uh, I like to call them sphere of control mm -hmm. uh, in the post-Soviet uh, space, limited sovereignty. Isn't there more to it? Or do you think this is just ideological? It's just you know, a way to build support among the middle classes. Um, so, so I'm wondering whether there isn't a project that goes beyond, uh, beyond the, the, the material and, 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 and the money. So, yeah, those are, should I, Please. should I jump in? No, those are, those are two excellent questions, Uli, and I'll take them one at a time. When, when I say that Russia's a crime, well, Putin's Russia, the Putin system is a crime syndicate, I'm not saying it's a failed state. In fact, it's a very effective state, and that's part of the problem. If you look at the, the, the Yeltsin area, this, this mafia principle worked, but you had a very weak godfather, so to speak. And below the level of the godfather, you had made men going off all in their own directions, and capos and underbosses going off in their own direction, thus the wild 90s nature of, 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 of Russian wild capitalism, mafia capitalism, if you will. What you have now is a very strong godfather who's done the functional equivalent of uniting the five families of New York. Right, um, and so you have a, you have a strong godfather, and you have corruption that is very controlled and very targeted. Like I said, that old Soviet era joke, if you if you steal out of proportion to your your rank, you're I, I don't know if there's a ledger anywhere that exactly says how much anybody at any rank in the system can steal, but it's tightly controlled, and if you step over that, you're 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 in trouble. The areas that are important to the state, i.e., the military and the security services are even tighter, more tightly controlled. Um, so I think just because we have corruption as a tool of statecraft, not corruption wild and free like you had it in the 90s, but corruption as a tool of statecraft, corruption is something you're using, you're trying to corrupt others. And in corrupting others in a controlled way, in order, in order to, to, to keep them under your control. So that would be, that would might be my answer to the first one. Just, just because corruption is a tool of statecraft doesn't mean we have a failed state. I would say quite the opposite, actually. Um, and the ideology question, that's something I, um, I was expecting to get this question a lot more today. And you're actually the first person that's come at me with that, because it's something I've thought of. And you know, we're all, I guess I can go back to a godfather. I already threw out one godfather metaphor, so I'll throw out another one. Um, that chilling scene in The Godfather 2 when Michael Corleone is baptizing his child. And he, the, he sincerely believed in his Roman Catholicism as he was ordering hits 
all over the city. And I think everybody's seen one of the, this is one of the most chilling scenes that Hollywood's ever shot, I think. Um, actually, when I was writing the original blog post that's, that's evolved into this, I, I actually went back and watched that scene. Um, and it, it, is, it is deeply chilling. La Cosa Nostra embedded itself in the, the rituals, in the venerable rituals of Roman Catholicism, just like the Putin syndicate embeds itself in the, the, the rituals of Russian nationalism and Orthodox Christianity. And that's not to say there are not people who sincerely believe this, but at the, at the highest levels, I don't think so. I think this is window dressing, to be honest. I really do. I think what really does at the very top, it comes down to not just money, money, control, power. These things are all tightly linked to each other. And I think that's what we're, we're looking at. Um, on the issue of Ukraine, because I think also you raise a, a, very, a very interesting, I, I don't think it's all over in Ukraine, and I think you're absolutely right. We're entering a very, very dangerous period in Ukraine now. The military phase of this is over, but you know, uh, war is politics by other means. Politics is also war by other means. And I think Putin understands this. Um, he, he, he under, I think he understands his Clausewitz, and he understands whoever flipped that metaphor on its head. I can't remember who it was, but I, I, I wish I could cite them right now. But uh, and you're right. The, the ties have not gone away. The Donbass oligarchs are going to be, it's really going to be mm -hmm. interesting to watch how this plays out. And I think there are a few things that are more, that are, that are more important than how this plays out. Because the, let's face it, without the Donbass oligarchs, this wouldn't have, in their backing, the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, uh, uh, counterintuitively, uh, it kind of surprised me at first. And then I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense, actually, when you think about it. And then afterwards, they're backing of Kiev. Some of them. Kolomoisky, Pinchuk's been quiet. Akhmetov was on the fence for a while. But, I, I, but they are still, yeah, they're in play. Mm -hmm. And there's danger here. Russia's doing its best to, of course, infiltrate and, and corrupt in, uh, Ukraine's institutions. Although I think with Crimea out of the picture and with the DNR and the LNR separated, more or less de facto, I think Russia's ability to do this is less than it used to be. It's not eliminated. And this actually gives me the opportunity to do something I've been, I've been pitching uh, relentlessly in our nation's capital as I'm, as I'm here. I, I talked about this in state. I talked about this at NATO in Brussels. Um, I talked about this in, 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 with the, the Foreign Affairs Committee at the House and the Senate today. Is I think that the West can have no better Russia policy right now than having a very strong Ukraine policy right now. I think there is a window of opportunity right now that, is, that creates Opportunities we're not going to have for, for a long time, again, in the future in Ukraine. We have to turn rump Ukraine, temporarily forgetting about the DNR, the LNR, and the Crimea. We have to, the, the area of Ukraine that Kyiv controls right now, we have to turn that into a success story. Yeah. We have to turn that into a success story for, for two reasons. Of course, it would be the best thing that ever happened to Ukraine. And, be, I mean, and by success story, I mean getting them embedded in the West fully secure and successful, turning them into, at the very least, Bulgaria and hopefully Poland. But the metaphor I use here is turning them into West Germany. Turn them in, in the, by, by that, I mean the commitment that, 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 that the Allied powers made to West Germany after the Second World War. Um, I think this is going to be costly. I think it's politically tricky, mm -hmm. if not impossible. I, I, I pitched this at NATO, and they said, do you think we're going to get the 28 to go, go along with that? You know, Are the French and the Italians going to go? I think the Germans would go along with it, quite yeah. frankly. Um, but, but, but this would be the best thing that ever happened to Ukraine, but it would also be the best thing that ever happened to Russia. Yeah. Because Russia is not going to change until it has a catharsis. It didn't have a catharsis after the, after the end of the Cold War. It never was really forced to look at itself and say, we have done horrible things, and we cannot be this way 
ever again. It didn't go through the catharsis that Germany went through after the Second World War, or that West Germany went through after the Second World War. Um, and all of this nonsense I keep hearing out of, out of the Kremlin and out of Kremlin apologists in this town and at other academic institutions throughout the, the United States whose names need not be mentioned, I think we all know who we're talking about, who are saying that the West created this, this crisis by humiliating Russia after the end of the Cold War. Excuse me, they were allowed to keep their Security Council seat, they were allowed to keep their nukes, they were allowed to have Ukraine's nukes, they were allowed to have Kazakhstan's nukes. I mean, humiliate me that way, please. <laughs> I mean, this, this is such a myth and it has to be countered every single time they say it because we did not humiliate them. It, the, the corollary to that is that the West provoked the Ukraine crisis by attempting to bring Ukraine into NATO. Excuse me, there was no discussion of Ukrainian NATO membership in 2013. Uh, the Ukrainians didn't want it, yeah. and NATO. I've spent enough time at NATO to know NATO didn't want it. Um, but 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 Russia was. But the, the, and so we bent over backwards to be accommodating to Russia after 1991. I remember being in Helsinki when President Yel Presidents Yeltsin and Clinton met to get Russia's permission to allow the Czech Republic, Poland, and, and Hungary to join NATO. When did we ever do that? Talk to a third party about letting three countries into, in, in, into an alliance, which should be their sovereign right. But we got Yeltsin to sign off on that. That doesn't look like humiliation to me. Um, but as, and I think this was good policy at the time, to be honest. But the corollary and the result of that was that Russia never really had to behave like a defeated power. Now, bringing Ukraine fully into the West, I think and I hope um, and, I, and I sincerely believe would provide the shock that Russia needs to start, at least start, this process of this catharsis, the psychological shock of losing Ukraine so decisively, and the example of a successful democratic Western country in a cultural similarly, similar neighboring country would be, I think, would be enormous. So I think the, the best Russia policy we could have right now is a good Ukraine policy. Uh, I'm gonna um, say something I think everyone will appreciate, which is that there is no party line at the Atlantic Council. And uh, we've heard some really interesting um, and I think insightful things from our speakers. And I agree with virtually everything they've said, but virtually, as opposed to all. <laughs> and on those smaller points, I'm going to offer um, a slightly different uh, perspective. Uh, one, I think Ulrich's question to Brian was right on the money. Uh, Brian, the Initial comments Brian made about Moscow as a mafia state using corruption as a principal tool of both internal rule and external manipulation is important to understand. But I'm a little bit, I'm not in complete agreement with Brian's gloss on that, which is that, in a sense, this is key, along with other factors playing a role, and things such as um, values and historical traditions being secondary. I think what you see in Kremlin policy is an updating in a messy uh, global economy, global world, of some traditional imperial and Soviet foreign policy traditions. It's not, I mean, I, I read only about 14 months ago a book Dmitry Trenin wrote uh, about the end of empire. He wrote it in 2002. And the th Trenin's thesis was, at that time, that Russia was going to pull away from this old grasping of territories, 
authoritarian rule at home and expansion abroad to become part of the global world. And of course, that didn't turn out so well. But the backstory in his book was all about the efforts, especially among the security services, to push in the other direction. And of course, we've seen over the past 14 or 15 months, but you can actually more perceptive observers have seen since 2008, or even 2007 with the cyber war on Estonia, uh, that in fact, the backstory is the main story. <laughs> and I remember working on the post-Soviet account in the mid-90s and giving speeches in late 94 and early 95 how we were very comfortable with Russian policy across the board, except in the near abroad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The frozen concept, frozen state concept, which of course there now may or may not be applying in Ukraine. So the tendency was always there. And it's come out of the closet over the past seven or eight years in a very clear way. And of course, they've combined this old tendency of Moscow statecraft with modern methods, mm -hmm. including use of international crime as a vehicle of influence. So that, that's point one. Point two, again, a slightly different perspective from the other panelists. On Ukraine, uh, I was not, I, I predicted uh, that the $15 billion loan was going to do nothing for Putin or Yanukovych because the people on the Maidan would not find that to be a particularly enticing offer. <laughs> and I predicted as well and I've made many mistaken predictions in my career, so I'm only focusing on the positive ones here. Uh, I predicted as well that Russia was not going to succeed with its war in the East because they didn't have the oligarchs. They never had the oligarchs. Yes, the oligarchs, like of all of them mentioned by the panelists, have played a certain number of games with the Kremlin, but none of those mentioned were ever the Kremlin's people, ever. And they all understood, as in fact Brian said, that they had a much better future looking westward than looking eastward because while they were very big fish in Kiev or in Ukraine, they had no particular influence in the Kremlin. And their Kremlin rivals, the Kremlin oligarchs, could eat them for breakfast if in fact Russia exercised sufficient influence in Ukraine. So they were never going to be the tools of, of Russian influence, uh, excuse me, of Russian control. They were willing to be influenced up to a point, not to threaten their own position. And you've seen in Ukraine, you could say from, from the very first days in the post-Soviet period, but actually before that, elements of an independent ethos. You see it in civil society. Mm -hmm. You see it in the political class that historically has not been part of the Russian story. And finally, finally, coming back to corruption, and this is something I think all of our panelists can agree with, but just to give some historical perspective. Uh, in a famous exchange between the great Russian historian Karamzin, who wrote in the late 18th and early 19th, actually early 19th century, with a correspondent in Moscow, Karamzin was in Italy, um, it was not just in the, early, in the early 21st century that elite Russians liked to go to Western Europe to, to relax. Uh, he said, so how are things in Moscow? 
And the response was, <laughs> as always, they steal. So the exploitation of elite status in Russia, not just in the post-Cold War period, has often involved theft. So, you know, what goes around uh, comes around. And what's happened before happens again. And in a sense, and here's where I really endorse what Brian said at the end, support for Ukraine in a serious way. And right now, we're talking about only semi-serious support mm -hmm. in Western capitals and no support in some other Western capitals. But real support for Ukraine leading success is the best way to break the historical Russian pattern, which is a very tragic one for the Russian people. And at the, at the danger of boring some of my colleagues at the Atlantic Council who have heard me say this more than once, we're going back to history, a strong policy in support of Ukraine and standing up to the gangster policies of Mr. Putin is something good for the Russian people because as the greatest Russian historian of them all had to, um, oh, this is embarrassing, Kuchevsky said in his course of lectures on Russian history, when Moscow marches abroad, the freedom of the Russian people suffers. Okay. With that, uh, I think we can open it up. Actually, I'll turn it over to a panel if anyone wants to comment on what can I've I, said. Please, just, just the one point about the 90s, uh, I think, I mean, it even went further. I think the West accepted a Russian sphere of control by, you know, letting them run South Caucasus, all these frozen conflicts. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was, and, and it's only now that suddenly, I mean, it's, it wasn't the West who wanted to get Ukraine in its sphere of whatever. It was the Ukrainians, and it was yeah. the yeah. Maidan who pushed the West. I mean, the EU could just not refuse this um, movement towards. That's correct. And, uh, that's and it, before it was, of course, the Yanukovych government, as we heard, that, that wanted, for the reasons you mentioned, um, wanted to have the DCFTA and the association agreement. But ultimately, it was the Ukrainians who forced the Europeans to get into this sphere. And until today, I think most Western leaders would just be happy if Putin would be able to run the space as it was supposed to be in the early 90s. So, Clinton, everybody, I mean, they, the American leaders didn't want to bother with these conflicts in Nagorno-Karabakh and in, 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 in Georgia, so on and so on. So I, I think that there is a sense of entitlement. And, and um, Brian spoke about the, the, the missing uh, self-reflection, the missing break with the Soviet history. And I think it was also a failure of the West to understand that Russia is, should not be an empire anymore and should not see itself as an empire anymore. And that's why it needs borders, because borders are what distinguishes an empire from a nation state. A nation state knows where, you know, where they can put their soldiers and, 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 and where, where the border is. And now it's really about defining borders, and it's a very hard moment for Russia because it's, it's used to be borderless. It's used to control the whole space, and suddenly, People are denying that space to Russia. And this is, this is the story where we're in. And that's why I think it's so crucial to support Ukraine, Georgia, whoever wants to be part of the Western sphere. And John, I don't, I don't know if you want to respond. I, I was going to make a point. Right, Please, yes. Uh, I think what you said is, is, is very important. Uh, I was in Ukraine during the Orange Revolution. 
And the same um, attitude that you just described regarding Western leaders, what were European leaders, was evident then. Uh, but European parliamentarians would come to Kiev, and they became enthusiastic supporters of uh, the Ukrainian people and the Maidan. Uh, and so the Ukrainian, Ukrainians are smart to play to European parliaments, mm -hmm. where these concepts of statecraft don't play as large a role. The, the other point I'd like to mention goes back to your, your initial comment about what was happening in the 90s. You're right that the West was kind of willing to let Putin have his way, not Putin, because at that point it was Yeltsin. Yeah. It was actually, it wasn't so much Yeltsin, it was the FSB right. and the GRU have their way in Georgia and the Caucasus and in, in the, um, in the Gordon Karabakh and in Moldova. But it's true that um, a play was made by Lushkov, mm -hmm. uh, then the mayor of Moscow, who seemed to be the Russian spokesman for a hard nationalist line in, Ukra in, in Ukraine, especially in Crimea. Uh, for, a play was made on Ukraine in 94, 95, and the West did respond, and the Kremlin backed down. So even then, Ukraine was a little bit different, if only because it was so large. Hmm. But you're right, the fact that the Ukrainian people have been behind this has made it hard for the West to ignore. And if I can, I yeah. want to get back to what, I said before. to what you said before and just reinforce your point about how a successful Ukraine is the best thing we can do for Russia. I go to Ukraine several times a year. I lived there. I was a Peace Corps volunteer there. And every time I talk to anyone under the age of 35, the one thing they all tell me is that they look at Poland hmm. and the success of Poland as their example. Oh, yeah? Countless Ukrainian students go across, they, have, they get their college degrees in Poland, and they come back and they say to me, look, in 1991, Ukraine and Poland, about the same size, similar histories in a way. They had about the same GDP. Ukraine's was actually a little bit higher because it had higher uh, industrial output. 25 years later, we see that they made the hard choices. They did what we decided we couldn't do and we wouldn't do. And now we go to Poland and we see how much better they live, how much less corruption there is. Their streets are reasonably clean and they, they don't have nearly as many potholes. They don't have to pay a bribe to do this or pay a bribe to do that. And it's taken a long time. But nearly every single person points to the example of Poland. There's one more point worth stressing what you've just said. Uh, there's no doubt that across Ukraine, it's the young who are pushing mm -hmm. things in the right direction. Polls showed, for example, that in the Donbass, before the uh, Russian hybrid war began, as many as, or no more than, 23, 24% of the population there was in favor of either independence or joining Russia. But of that 23, 24%, overwhelmingly, it was the old people, which is why even after the um, turmoil began with the Russian political tourists, you had demonstrations of thousands of people at universities, at Luhansk University, mm -hmm. despite the presence of guys with guns on the other side, because the young people didn't want this. And that's why, of course, you never had a real um, uprising among or any real demonstrations against Kiev in those areas, because the young people were the ones who do demonstrations and who do turmoil, mm -hmm. and they just weren't there. With that, we can turn it over to the audience, please. My name's Alex Van Oss. I used to teach uh, Caucasus Area Studies at the Foreign Service Institute. 
My question is about George Soros, who's not shy about recommending that large amounts of money uh, be sent to Ukraine. He writes long articles in the New York Review of Books and so forth. Given this heady brew of uh, corruption and fear and all that, do you think that's a good thing to do, send lots and lots and lots of money to Ukraine now? Hmm. Does anyone want to take that? that? I mean, I think I, that, that's why European governments are so you know, reluctant to commit large sums to Ukraine, I think. But Anders, Anders Aslund is sitting here, so he, he may be the one to, to take that question. But I think this is the, the question is, uh, to, to which pockets is, is the money going to go? And that's why m many European governments are reluctant to, 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 to you know, put large sums there before things are cleaned up. But of course, this this the, the problem, I mean, that you know, in order to clean up, they need some money, they need to survive, and I think at the moment they're just on, on, on life, um, life support, yeah. life support and, and just getting what they need to survive, but without having a, a real, you know, kind of situation where they can respire and, and, and start big things. But uh -oh. Maybe uh -oh. Anders Aslan would uh -oh. like to say something. Arjen, do you want to say something? Yeah. <laughs> Anders Aslan, Atlantic Council. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, what can be done with this money? First of all, you can push through a substantial reform plan. The IMF program is an excellent way of doing so. The IMF so far this year has spent $7.6 billion on Ukraine in credits, and it's likely to uh, disperse $3.4 billion more. This means that Ukraine has now increased gas prices four times so that oligarchs can no longer buy it for one price and sell it at an eight times higher uh, price. So this is how, and now we see two of the oligarchic parties are campaigning for cutting the gas tariffs by half, a populist that does not seem to go home because uh, they want to start the old gas trade again. And this, the IMF has managed to push through together with half a dozen strong reformers in the, in the government They've cut the budget deficit sharply, and they have let the exchange rate float so that Ukraine can now finance itself on its uh, foreign account. And in, uh, in addition, uh, what Soros has been arguing recently for is uh, that uh, the European Union should provide money, as Sweden has uh, just put up uh, half a billion dollars for in the currency swap, the money stays in Stockholm but it's counted as part of the reserves. That's the best way of controlling corruption because you can't put the, your hands on it, but the, the currency is stabilized thanks to, to this uh, money. So there are many ways in which you can impose conditions so that the money can't be stolen. You can demand reforms that makes uh, corruption less, and you can keep the money abroad so that it can't be stolen. Thank you. I could jump in on that one too. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, using the historical precedent of the Marshall, the overused historical precedent of the president of the Marshall Plan, I think actually this and the Marshall Fund. Did I say that? Um, I, I, I think it's. I mean, when Marshall Plan funds were distributed in Germany, they were distributed even at the local level mm -hmm. by American officials. The, the kind of money that Ukraine requires right now. Mm -hmm also requires a temporary and limited uh, limitation on Ukraine's sovereignty. 
Um, but I think that Ukraine is open to this right now. I think if, if, if the West were they truly committed, be. they have to be, but I think they, they truly are. I think the elite in the society are, are open to this, but that window of opportunity is not going to be open forever. Right? If we're talking about turning rump Ukraine, as I'm calling it, into, in, into West Germany and leaving the, the LNR and the DNR and let them become the GDR, um, and I think we all know which side of that fence any sane person is going to want to live on, um, I think that, you, that, that it's going to require a, a, a tight controls. Now, it's not going to have to be done like it was done in the 40s. Um, we have more technology to, 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 to control, uh, to place controls on how money is spent and how, and so that, that the level of corruption will not, will not be a problem. And I think it's precisely because that this corruption exists that we need to inject this kind of money. But we're not just talking about money here. We're also talking about what I think is a lot trickier, and that's the security guarantees. Because how are we going to provide, if you're, if you're, going, to, if you're going to turn the, the part of Ukraine that Kiev controls, which is the vast majority of Ukraine, into, in, into something, you know, using the West Germany metaphor, but really, best case, case scenario, we're going to turn it into Bulgaria um, or maybe Poland in the short term. Um, but but it's, it's, it's going to require serious security guarantees. And I don't know, I really don't know what kind of form those can take, because you're not going to get the 28 to, to agree to admitting Ukraine to NATO at this, at this, at this point in time, and, and no, nor should we, I think. But th th that's something that's going to take a lot of thinking of what, how, how are we going to create those security guarantees. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for this presentation. I'm Elaine Saray. I'm the Associate Rector of Wisconsin International Ukraine University in Kiev, Ukraine, a private institution dealing with economics. Um, I really do appreciate what was said, because what, what you've said today actually ties together a whole host of points I made, particularly with regard to US support and funding for stability and security in Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, I delivered an address to WIUU, which they invited senior members of President Poroshenko's government, uh, where I was talking to how Ukraine could best administrate and manage such funds if they were available and what they needed to do. Uh, the reception was very good, and I'm providing additional information to WIUU for their engagement with their uh, Ukrainian colleagues. Uh, why my question is to something that you presented as a, the, the syndicate, so to speak. And uh, it reminded me almost of another period of time, the de Medici's. Um, I think we were just seeing history repeating all over itself, all over the world. And here we have uh, the issue of something that reaches all the way here to the US. When you have global economic corporations and the allegiances are not necessarily national, but rather global and to, unto themselves. Um, we also start to wonder how uh, maybe even our organizations here, not business, but for instance, I wondered why on earth an organization like the uh, Heritage Foundation and others would be eliminating their Russian uh, uh, chairs. And uh, maybe you have some thoughts, if, because if you eliminate the voices 
then you eliminate anybody who can start to respond to a dialogue here about what is happening. This is very different than what's, of course, happening, taking place, of course, today here at the Atlantic Council. But we might not hear those kinds of voices taking place, let's say, at the Heritage Foundation. Do you have any thoughts as to the far-reaching development? Uh, I, I would just make the point regarding the uh, the uh, drop in resources devoted to experts on Russia as a, a serious problem, one that's been evident to people in the field for over a decade. I think it now may be coming evident to policymakers because uh, we have a serious Kremlin problem creating a major instability in Europe, and I would say globally, and perhaps this will lead to a change. But uh, it, it's true that you know, circa 2001, actually circa 1991, yeah. uh, people began to feel that, well, there isn't a problem coming from Moscow, ergo we don't need to pay the attention that's required. Mm -hmm. And that tendency, oh, actually that's not fully true because the US government paid a lot of attention to the post-Soviet space for the first seven or eight years after independence. But in terms of funding for the future, maybe not so much. And of course, after 9-11, we diverted our attention to different parts of the world in ways that have cost us today. And that's still reflected in our policy, where at least as of a few months ago, we devoted far more intelligence assets to that mega power ISIL, as opposed to Russia, which is kind of a strategic joke, a very bad one. Other questions? Mark? Yes, hello, thank you. Uh, I have one question actually regarding uh, the part of the nature of the European Union Association Agreement with Ukraine. Now, the majority of the agreement was free trade uh, in nature, but deeply embedded within some of these clauses were mutual defense uh, notions. Now, this was not lost to some of the Russians, especially policymakers and everything, and that I think that, while well, I, I agree with you 100% about the nature the criminal nature of uh, the Russian political system, I think some of the Russians read into these treaties, uh, perhaps wrongfully, uh, a NATO expansion onto their borders. Uh, now, this was not stated in the treaties, but there were notions of mutual defense with the European Union. I think in the, in the, in the mind's eye of Russia, uh, the European Union is uh, an extension of American foreign policy. And it's not a view I believe at all, nor is the view the United States has articulated. This is, this is what Putin and others of his mind think. So when you said earlier that I see no reason why the Russians would interpret an EU association agreement as being nothing more than a bureaucratic uh, mess, some of them believe it to be, uh, cynically, I think, um, NATO expansion onto a very perceived sensitive area of Russian influence. I'm not agreeing with this view at all, but it's something that is not mentioned enough, I think, in the West, that the social agreement was not as benign as might initially appear to be. Thank you. I can, please. I can jump uh, into yeah. it. There, <laughs> there's a clause Softball. saying that um, the country, in all association agreements, also with Tunisia and other countries, it's just that the country needs to align itself with what is called CSDP and CFSP, 
which is foreign and security policy of the European Union. But it's well known that the European Union is not a military actor. So, so the, the, the idea that to get, you know, you know, to have the EU as a future um, replacing NATO, also, I think all these ideas are gone. So it's European defense is NATO. It's not, it's not the EU. It just, just means that when, when the EU has a policy, the aspiring country or the association partner should align itself with those policies. Um, but in a deeper sense, I think you, you're right. I mean, this has been seen as a threat. The e Until summer 2013, sure. there was no sign on the Russian side you know, uh, yeah. that there was concern. And I know from people in Brussels who talk to the Russians all the time, there are two EU-Russia summits per year. And they tried to put this on, on the agenda, and the Russians were simply not interested. So it, it only, and, and there's, there's, there's a quote from Putin, I think 2006 or so, where he says it was, would be beneficial to have Ukraine in the EU because this, this Ukraine could serve as a bridge to modernize Russia. So that was you know, the idea of modernization, Ukraine helpful, cooperation with the EU. It was only in summer 2013 when they suddenly started to boycott exactly. things. Exactly. And of course, I mean, they smelled it. What they smelled was that Ukraine wanted to get out of Russia's sphere of control. And that may lead to NATO or EU membership in 20 years or 10 years or whenever. Um, but I think then this was the real threat to Russia. It's not that NATO is an alliance that wants to attack Russia or, or whatever hurt Russia. We, we have the NATO-Russia Council. We have all these attempts to make Russia understand that this, it's, NATO is also in Russia's interest. And that would, I would argue even for Russia, it's much better to have Central Europe in NATO instead of having, you know, Russians were very in, agreed ultimately that Germany will be part of NATO. Gorbachev understood that this is better for Russia to have Germany being aligned in NATO instead of a country having of Germany's size having it free floating. And you could also make the argument with regards to Poland, Central Europe. They, they, are, they are now closely aligned with NATO and Russia is cooperating with NATO. So it's I would argue it's much. It's also in the Russian interest. Of course, there are different interpretations, but this may have to do also with the fact that continuity with the Soviet Union, that NATO still is seen as an enemy in a, in a different environment, a different NATO, a different geopolitical situation, but NATO is still the enemy. I think they played it up, but um, you're right in the sense that losing control over Ukraine, um, that, that, that's the real threat to Russia. I would concur with what, what, what Uli said. I mean, I'll be really blunt. I think this is just, I, I've heard these, the, the, these, these noises coming out of Moscow, and I think it's just completely disingenuous. Absolutely. Okay, for, for the reasons Uli outlined there, and I, I see no need to, to repeat them. But it, and I would add, it's not the first time they've been completely disingenuous. We've all heard the myths of the promises Helmut Kohl allegedly made to Mikhail Gorbachev about German unification, that if this happened, there would be no further expansion of NATO to the, to the, to the Eastern European countries. Um, first of all, that never happened. The record shows that that never happened. It's a myth. It's something that the Russians made up out of whole cloth. But they've repeated it 
ad nauseum so many times that it's become reified. And, and Gorbachev they, recently said it's not true. Gorbachev recently yes. said it's not true, but they've done this again and again and again. I mean, it, it, so I, this is in the same category of the famous comments that Madeleine Albright uh, said that we all know didn't say about how the United States craves Russia's uh, natural resource wealth and it's not fair that Russia gets to have this, this, this wealth. Um, you know how, does anybody know how this got into the information space? There was an article in 2010, Ten. if I'm not mistaken, in the Rasitskaya Gazette, the official Russian government's publication, an interview with a retired KGB officer who was in Yeltsin security detail. And in the course of this interview, he said that he, he was part of the Department of Mind Reading in the KGB. I was unaware they had such a thing, but apparently they did. And this man claims- They were very skilled. This man claims to have read Madeleine Albright's mind during a visit to <laughs> Moscow, and that he that, that 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 she craved Russia's that he found out that she craved Russia's natural resources. Well, this has been repeated by Vladimir Putin, Patrushev, and countless other officials over and over and over again. For and now, every single Russian I speak to believes this is true. And so this is this is just another example of this. It's it's just it's disingenuous. You really have to check out every fact they say. Yes, I've seen this clause, as Uli has pointed out, in, in in the association agreement, but it's nobody truly takes this seriously. NATO membership for Ukraine was not on anybody's plate in 2013. And if I can just please jump in on the on the military question. Look, in, in, it is true. In 2008, under uh, Viktor Yushchenko, mm -hmm. the previous Ukrainian president, they had been making noises about joining NATO. This is, this is very true, but at the Bucharest summit that year, 2008, I think it was April, mm -hmm. the European powers said, look, this is not going to happen. This is not a good idea right now. We're just, we're going to put you on the back burner. Germany and France. Germany and France. Absolutely. And, it, and at the time, it was a very unpopular idea in, in Ukraine itself. I remember walking around Odessa at the time, and you'd see spray painted on fences, NATO nam ne nada. We don't need NATO. And it was, it was a, a, a serious factor in Ukrainian policy. It was not a popular idea. What has made NATO a popular idea is Vladimir Putin's invasion of the country. Only recently has this become a popular idea. And in 2013, when this be, really became an issue, you know, there, that wasn't even on anyone's mind. It wasn't on Viktor Yanukovych's mind. It wasn't on the mind of the people of Ukraine, much less was it on the mind of NATO itself. And I, I think it's also important to note the, the inherent weakness of the European defense system. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a fun story, I think it was, Easter Sunday, uh, 2012 or 2013, and uh, Russian bombers, I believe, buzzed uh, Sweden. That's right. And it was Easter Sunday, so the Swedes had no pilots on duty. And they're not a member of NATO, but they called up their buddies in Lithuania, uh, and I think the Lithuanians called somebody else. Short end of the story is it took about two hours for someone to actually get planes there. If this had actually been a real drill, uh, you know, a real, a real drill, uh, that's how unorganized, essentially, the European security establishment was. It's gotten a lot better, um, still needs to get a lot better, but that's, it's, it's frankly pretty absurd to think that Russia would be scared of uh, a couple of Swedish planes. No, Russia was scared, but they were scared for other reasons, for yeah. the reasons that I, that I outlined exactly. about what the, what the military reason is, is not a, a total sham, yeah. yeah. Okay, other questions? Andre. Unreal, I don't know, Kate Institute. Actually, I don't have questions, I have comments, if I may, right? Uh, three short comments. Uh, first, concerning the 
kind of the general idea about this model that has been presented as current Russian power as a syndicate, the crime syndicate. There is a problem. It's rather hard to explain uh, this Ukrainian war that we're discussing right now if we consider it as a just crime syndicate. There is no reason to attack Ukraine. There is no uh, expose all these uh, contacts in Europe uh, that to be under sanctions, uh, to be uh, half isolated, and so on, so on, so on. Uh, also, the recent comments of Ulrich uh, concerning this different approach towards EU and NATO. Initially, there was no objections to Ukraine in EU. There was no early even objections, not from Russia, to be in NATO. Moreover, it's on record position of Putin in year 2001, year 2003, that Russia should be a full-fledged member of NATO. So all these and many other uh, facts are rather important cannot be explained as this model. I don't think that it's wrong. I think it's a very important element of the system. But just to keep to only this model, only model of the syndicate, does not explain the uh, complexity of the beast. Uh, it's just uh, observation. Uh, two small comments about Ukraine, because it's somehow the discussion shifted towards Ukraine and how to save Ukraine. Um, uh, it's a very important element of Ukrainian system oligarchs. Uh, but there are different oligarchs over there. Mr. Kolomoisky, who has been mentioned, uh, it's not an oligarch who does work with Kremlin. As we know, his assets have been confiscated by uh, Kremlin. But there is another oligarch in Ukraine whose assets has not been confiscated by Kremlin, and who has his chocolate factory in Lipetsk, who works three shifts uh, daily, and who has uh, expanded investment program uh, since the beginning of Russian invasion in Ukraine, which is a very interesting observation. So that is why we need to think about different Ukrainian oligarchs. Who does work with Kremlin? Who does not work with Kremlin? And what kind of consequence for Ukrainian politics? And my last point about the IMF program that, unfortunately, Anders left. Uh, he was very high about the IMF program. It has good elements, but the idea is just to allow and actually to force Ukraine to default on its foreign debt, from my point of the wrong. Because the problem of Ukraine is not money, it's not lack of money. Ukraine is not absolutely poor country, it's not a hippie country. Uh, and the uh, problem of Ukraine cannot be solved with money. The problem with Ukraine, as Russians suggest to some extent, is institutions, mm -hmm. is the rule of law. And those problems cannot be solved by money from the IMF or from whomever. So it should be done some homework by Ukrainians with help of Westerners. So that is why, for example, police reform that has been uh, studied in Ukraine with the help of the United States and others is very important for future success of Ukraine. And I think more efforts should be directed towards building new institutions, institutions uh, in Ukraine. And that's a way for success for Ukraine and eventually for Russia. Um, why don't we respond to that? No. I mean, uh, actually, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't claim to have a holistic model for explaining everything. But I think what I say at the outset, I see this as a, as a useful heuristic that's helping us kind of understand this. Um, no, it doesn't explain everything. On the, on the, on the matter of the, 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 the Ukraine crisis, I think what we had there was mission creep, essentially. Russia kept making a series of moves that didn't work 
as I spelled out the series of mistakes they made, they thought it was going to be game over when they bought off Yanukovych. That didn't work. They thought it was going to be game over when, when you cracked down on, uh, on, the, on the Euromaidan protesters. That didn't work. They thought it was going to be game over when they seized first Crimea and hopefully, from their perspective, Novorossiya. That didn't work. They just, they're, they're just each escalation just brought them in deeper and deeper until before they noticed, and I think they're beginning to realize it now, that in the military phase of this, they're in way over their heads, and they have to switch to other methods of controlling Ukraine, which is which accounts for the the, the, the noises were coming that are coming out of the Kremlin right now. The the peaceful coexistence is the new the new buzzword we're hearing out of the Kremlin these days. I, I, that, that's a, a blast from the past. We haven't heard that one since the 70s. Um, but the the desire of President Putin to have a meeting with President Obama next week during the UN General Assembly. Um, I'm surprised Syria hasn't come up yet. Some interpretations of Syria is that this is a transactional move, so Russia will have something to trade uh, to get itself out of the out of the mess that it's in right now. But but uh, yeah, so I think I think we essentially saw a, a sense of mission creep here, um, and it's very easy for a crime syndicate to get into mission creep. I think it's not only it's something that doesn't only apply to governments. On the Ukrainian oligarchs, I agree with you. There's 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 pluralism among the Ukrainian oligarchs, and that pluralism extends from the pro, from the pro Moscow to the pro Kiev and pro Western gamut. Um, so it's it's I certainly wouldn't look at the Ukrainian oligarchs as one monolithic block. We have time for one more question. Yes, Marek oh, Minkishak, my colleague from uh, the Transatlantic Academy. Ah, hello, Marek Minkishak, Center for Eastern Studies, OSW Poland. I have one provo provocative question to you, because we, uh, for good reasons, we are, we are blaming Russia for what it is. But uh, are we really clean on that? Uh, you've mentioned, of course, that there are problems of Russian money penetrating the West. Um, and we know that for, for many years, actually. And those syndicate which you described is actually increasingly transnational. So we can you know, tell anecdotes about meetings with uh, uh, President Putin and Prime Minister Berlusconi when it was at the time, and many others, uh, politicians, uh, uh, Czech Prime Minister Topolanek on Sardinia, and all these uh, other stories. Um, but uh, there were certain actions made, even in the 90s and later, uh, on the crackdown on the Russian organized crime with clear connection with the state, like in Spain, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who run this lost their jobs. Uh, the many uh, cases which were uh, under development in Germany, in Switzerland were closed. Um, and actually, there is a popular theory in Russia that among uh, uh, some experts that uh, the U United States proper services has full knowledge of where money goes and who possesses them and how they are used and so on. But it's not used, actually, this knowledge. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm a bit skeptical about whether is it fully true, but uh, and at least certain uh, justification for the recent sanctions towards targeted sanctions against individuals and uh, companies within Russia could suggest that such a knowledge uh, exists to at least to some extent. And the big question is, if it's the, the case, if we know actually, uh, about all of this, what is the reason we cannot disclose that? 
Is it because of a safety? For example, I've been to Finland, I spent three months there and uh, uh, two years ago, and that was a very interesting time. Uh, and I talked to a people uh, in, in Finland until a few years ago, there was a taboo uh, in media. You cannot actually touch upon certain issues. Like, for example, uh, the Finnish citizenship and activity in Finland of uh, close Putin associate, Mr. Timchenko, Boris Rottenberg, who has Finnish citizenships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, uh, in some uh, talks, uh, some people reluctantly admitted that they were not touched because it was, uh, it was kind of a safety precaution. So that was a kind of very unofficial safety line by the Finnish state, actually. Mm -hmm. They had full knowledge about what is going on, but they took in no action or no disclosure because they, they believed that uh, tolerating these people would create certain safety for the country. So uh, my question is, to what extent we are co-responsible for existing and developing these uh, networks? My short answer to your question is no, we are not entirely clean, and yes, we are co-responsible. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do you, how do you, but how do you, and this, this actually is, is actually good news, though, because this syndicate has been able to operate because we participated in the collective hallucination that this syndicate is actually a respectable businessman. Or, 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 respectable or, respectable government. Or respectable government. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to be... Former chancellors. And the first, the, the very first step in confronting a, a, a crime syndicate posing as a government is to enforce your own laws. And I'm seeing <coughs> slow progress in this direction, particularly in Europe. Um, Gazprom was able to flout this. Europe's antitrust laws, which for some inexplicable or actually explicable reason, They're Europe explicable. was unwilling to, to enforce. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly, magically, as a result of this crisis, as the result of the mask coming off and us seeing what we're dealing with here, Europe has suddenly discovered that, oh yeah, it's probably a very good idea to, <laughs> to enforce our antitrust laws on, 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 on energy and on other things. And it's probably a good idea that Mr. Timchenko isn't, isn't able to behave like a respectable businessman, and he's now on the sanctions list. So I think we're seeing the first tentative steps. Every time I speak on this issue in Europe, um, and I'll make the odd media appearances in different European media, and I make the point over and over and over again, most recently with the Czechs, I made this, that corruption is not just an issue of good governance anymore. It is still, of course, an issue of good governance. But right now, in this environment, with this Russia, Corruption is a matter of national security. Yeah. Corruption is a matter of national security of the highest order. And I think Europe is waking up to this. One of the many mistakes that Putin made in this, I would add one, he got Germany so wrong <laughs> that it's mind-blowing. This is a man that I would say he got Schroeder right and Merkel wrong. Oh, he got yes. Schroeder right, but I think he got but Ger Germany wrong. But he got yeah. Germany wrong. Definitely. And as Germany goes, so goes much. Europe. Because he thought Schroeder was, was Germany. But yeah. I think it, it goes beyond. I mean, how is a man that spent so many years as a KGB agent in Dresden, who speaks German and passes himself off as a German expert, how could he not understand that the first territorial ex uh, annexation in Europe since the Second World War wasn't going to freak the Germans out a little bit? 
How could he not understand that the rhetoric and actions we're seeing out of the Kremlin that, that reek of something we saw in Germany in the 1930s, quite frankly, and I don't think that's, an over, that's a metaphor that's overused. In this case, it's not overused. How did he not understand that that wasn't going to freak the Germans out? And, and freak the Germans out, he did. Because if you look at the, I'm not just talking about Merkel and Schrader here. Look at the poll. Look at the polls, the Pew poll on Germany, and look at the trend line. And look at where Russia was 2007, 2008, 2009, all the way up to 2014, and then it drops like a rock. But it took it took the shoot down of, of the airlines. of MH17. I mean, we, we, we but could they, say he lost the two most important countries for him in Europe, which are Ukraine and Germany. And Germany, right. yeah, and, and and they were counting on the Germans to carry their water in this, and they got it just so mind-blowingly wrong. Can I comment, if I can, just uh, real quickly on the U.S media uh, attitude towards this. I mean, it, it frankly doesn't come up very often. It's not something that's often talked yeah, about here. Um, you rarely even see Ukraine on the nightly news, or uh, it's a rare thing, frankly, that you would see that. I also think that there is perhaps a little bit of a taboo of talking about it, but I don't necessarily see very much of that. The problem is more that it's just not thought about or not talked about at all. Um, and the lovely gentleman in front of you, uh, Charles Davidson, had a op-ed uh, today, I believe, in Politico. Uh, he focused actually on the Chinese issue and the Chinese corruption issue. But it, it, here, I think you see the, there's more concern about the Chinese rather than the Russians, whereas in Europe, you do see much more concern about the Russians because it's so much in their backyard. Yeah. Russian investment in the US, frankly, is pretty low, pretty small. It's not something we're worried about. But I do think what, uh, what Charles offered up in, in his op-ed, some of the prescriptions are things that we really should take seriously, looking at shell companies, looking at uh, the, little, the little things that we can do um, to root the corruption out of our own system. Uh, on why we don't list the names or, or talk about these people, I have been told that at least when it comes to sanctions lists, once the Treasury Department, if it's going to put someone's name or a business's name on a list to be sanctioned, it has to be certain that it can prove the case in a court of law. Mm. Otherwise, you essentially open yourself up to, to slander and libel cases. And that's at least what I've been told. Well, on that note, thank you all very much for coming and thank our panelists for a wonderful discussion. Thank you.